Thank you for joining me on this week's Homeowners Be Aware podcast. Back in August, there was a huge wildfire in Hawaii on the island of Maui. Much of the community of Lahaina was destroyed. 96% of the structures burned were residential. If you're a homeowner anywhere, this fire should serve as a wake-up call for you that disaster can strike anywhere. So what's your plan if it's heading your way and how are you positioned for recovery after it strikes? A guy I've known since high school, Howie Hevern, lives in Maui and experienced the fire firsthand. He joins me today with his friend who also lives on Maui, Ethan Shelton. We talk about what it was like during the fire, what life is like there today, and what that road to recovery really looks like. I'm George Siegel, and this is Homeowners Be Aware, the podcast that teaches you everything you need to know about being a homeowner. Howie and Ethan, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Absolutely a pleasure. Now, you guys are in a part of the world that we all think of as paradise, but it's been anything but a paradise uh, lately. You're in Lahaina and you had those awful fires. Talk about what that was like and and let us know how you guys are doing now. Um, I'll start with, uh, I didn't even really know there was going to be a big fire. I live eight miles north towards Kapalua uh, from the fire. And at eight o'clock at night, I looked out my door and I could see like, looked like the glow from the volcano on the big island, just glowing. And then I went to work the next morning and I figured it must have been a big fire in Lahaina just because it's a very dry time of the year and there are lots of fires, brush fires from Lahaina to the tunnels to get out of that area. So I just figured the police would come if anything happened and they didn't. So I went to work the next morning and all I noticed is that the electricity was out and I'm doing presentations in the dark. I sell vacation ownership. And then I started getting texts uh, from around the world telling me, oh, my God, and I didn't even know. And I had to get all my information over the next few weeks because the electricity went out. There was no water. There was no Internet. There was nothing. There was everything was I was getting from just Texas. And so, your house, though, your house wasn't in the in the fire line, though. So your house came out OK. Right. But I, five of my friends lost their houses and one of my good friends lost his life he uh, he ran into a burning building and uh, a lady was screaming pulled her out saved her ran back into the building never came back out so that was really sad um they the power lines what happened was there was a 50 50 60 mile an hour winds and I, you know i've never seen that in hawaii that was so dry there was no not a cloud in the sky and it was going right down to the ocean and it was very dry up in Lahaina. Those houses are very old, 60 years old or more. And so it was kind of like, you know, looking back at it, 2020 hindsight, you can see that someday there could be a big fire there. I mean, I didn't think about that, but it, you know, when the fire erupted and the flames got high, it increased the wind by, you know, another 35 miles an hour. So they said it traveled at a mile a minute. Yeah, the and video the and the, the images are just, just frightening about what happened. Ethan, what was your situation like with the fire? I didn't live there. I don't, I don't live in Lahaina. I live in Wailuku. Uh, but And my first initial experience with the fire was from Kula. I got word that um, uh, my friend was being ordered out of Kula. It wasn't in Lahaina. That was before anybody heard anything. Before any fires had started in Lahaina at that point. 
And uh, I actually called him and made a joke. I said, when did your barbecue get out of hand? I had no idea how bad it was at that point. And I didn't even know that everybody had ordered evacuation to be evacuated. Now, when I think about where you guys live, you know, and, and, and the hazards you might face, I think about volcanoes. I think about hurricanes. You think about tsunamis if there's an earthquake. But the thought of wildfire, I've learned since then, it's actually a very real um, a very real threat. Did you guys consciously think about something like this on a regular basis, like other disasters? Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Every Almost every single year, West, West Valley Mountains has um, fires. There, There's a brush fire that happens to some degree, some more severe than others, some jump and even hit uh, Ma'alaya. So starting from Ma'alaya all the way up to past Kanapali, we have experienced fires in those dead areas, especially since they haven't been growing pineapples and sugar, sugar cane anymore. They've been growing. Howie, that's, what, that, that's what seems kind of, that's, that's where a lot of people struggle with, with how tragic this was in that it seems like it was a, a series of things gone wrong that just worked against an area. Because I always look at how prepared are people? Do they understand the risks? Do they have a plan if something bad happens? And all that seems like it kind of went out the window there. It was the perfect storm is what it was. Uh, they didn't set off the, uh, they should have set off the tsunami warnings, but they were afraid that people would, you know, run up the mountain towards the fire. But, you know, they would have woken up open their door and seen the fire and they would have known what to do at least had to get away from it so that was one problem then the firemen were starting to win the fire but then they turned the water off right Ethan? water was turned off yeah water was turned off so they couldn't even fight the fire and it went so quickly you know there was embers you know they're going 75 miles an hour and they were landing in people's hair and they were running towards the water and uh it got so thick that they could hardly see. And some of the people made it to the seawall knowing they had to go into the ocean. And it was so thick they dove off the seawall, but it was low tide. So it was all rocks. They they broke their backs and arms, and then they burned to death. And the lucky ones went out, and they swam out, way out. They said the, the waves in front of the harbor were on fire. That's how bad the flames were. And so Yeah, because of all the soot that had built up on top as a layer, and then all the burning embers would rest on top of that soot and continue to burn on top of the water. So waves so, were on fire. Yeah. People had to like, jump through that murk and that burning murk to get into some water. So it was a horrible situation. You can imagine. Uh, it, it, it sounds horrible. And it, all the images are horrible. You know, I made a documentary film called The Last House Standing, and it, it, it featured a house in Mexico Beach, Florida, that truly was the last house standing. And there's actually an image that comes out of your area of the house that was right on the water where supposedly they were concerned about termites, but they did things that mitigated the potential damage around the house. And that one house survived. Do you know the house I'm talking about? Yeah, we sure do. Yeah. And I, I hear those people have been incredibly gracious to everybody, taking people in and helping people. What's it like to see one house standing amongst an entire area that's burned down? It's strange. I saw a church that was not touched either. Houses burned all around it, but the church was still standing. It's fine. Any thoughts other fun. than uh, religious implications about why that is? I mean, is there, did they do anything? Did they have no brush near there? Was it? 
Well, they won't even let you go near the fires. And people are just starting to get back to be able to go back to their land. And they're sifting through the land like gold miners looking for pieces of jewelry and stuff like that. And the land, they're saying, is very, very toxic. And so they have to clear the land, I guess, right, first. That's what they're saying. So it's going to be a long process. Uh, you know, there's been a the problem was when the fire, the fire, uh, not the fire, the telephone poles, you know, they burned and fell and the wires dropped from the poles. So people couldn't drive in or out and they were stuck. And they didn't know the wires themselves were deactivated, yeah. energized. So they were scared. So neither what, did the police. The police didn't know it either. So they were stuck in their car. Some of them burned alive in their car just because they were stuck in traffic when they should have ran to the water and swam now out. The, the, the loss of life is so tragic in, in what happened there. And then I imagine that's impossible to get over because you can never bring those folks back. And now you're talking about trying to rebuild lives. Are they giving people an indication of how long it will be till they can clear their lot and possibly start to rebuild or people may, being able to get their insurance claims filed and handled? What are you, what are you hearing about all that? From, I've, I've been talking to quite a few people. Their insurance claims are going really well as far as if they had, I mean, if they had good insurance, the, the bigger companies, State Farm, Allstate, so on and so forth, they, those are, they'll get an initial payment up front. Um, there's a lot of concern. And, and of course, they get what they call depreciation later, but that's after they've already built. The problem that we're actually hearing from a lot of people, and it's a suspicion of a land bank. Are you aware of what that is? No, I'm not. Land bank is when they wait people out longer than they have the ability. I mean, they stall development and construction and approvals and permitting and all that kind of stuff longer than the people's money will last. So ultimately, a lot of people feel like this is sort of an eminent domain land grab type of thing. And the strategy is to land bank it. So is the land as toxic as everybody says? We don't know. Nobody knows here and everybody's suspicious about it. Nobody knows because it's just been the EPA that's been in there. No, no independent studies. And there's been no absolutely zero uh, media allowed in there. So none of the uh, at least none of our local press has been on there to make any independent studies, any independent research at all. Um, I've reached out to several professors in uh, UH. They've, they haven't returned my calls yet. And I reached out to the law professors as well as some of the, the, the science department to see if we can get some soil samples over there and find out what it is, what is going on. And if it is toxic, like they say it is, there's, they shouldn't have any problem letting independent scrutiny um, let it undergo independent scrutiny. Would you agree with that? But uh, anyway, they, they don't. And everybody's suspicious of the government right now. So uh, well, is it toxic? I don't know. I Yeah, go ahead. What are you going to say? I was going to say, I completely understand suspicion of the government and what you would wonder what interests are are at play with something like that. So the whole area is just closed off. Is it fenced off? People can't get near it? Yeah, they, That's they're, even they're more fencing so. it off so the tourists, when they drive by, they can't actually go into the line of town. But if you get close to the line of town, they fenced it all off so people can't see it. It looks like Ukraine, like bombs, like a like an atomic bomb went off. Everything is gray and black. The, all the wood is gone. The, you know, a lot of trees were burned. Um, and then also they had a problem with uh, a lot of the houses had propane. So those were 
like each Those house, boom, boom, boom. And then the transformers are on the telephone poles. They're exploding. So it was just like a war zone. I mean, it was the most horrendous thing you can think of. But remember you were talking about the house that didn't get burned? Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a lot of things about this fire that are, to say the least, anomalous. So there were things that were that were burnt and there was nothing, no tinder, no kindling or anything around to show an ignition source. There also, when I got, when I looked at it myself and I looked up and I looked at the hillside, I see ignition in the middle of the field where there are no wires or anything like that. Where did that come from? Did the fire suddenly go backwards when the wind was going the opposite direction? See, so it's not just the house that didn't burn. It's the odd things that did burn and the weird way that they did burn, like burning aluminum and not burning asphalt, which is a lower temperature. Um, you see where I'm going with all this? Yeah, I don't. I I don't know really know where to to take that. I know when there's a firestorm, when that fire comes over the hill and like it creates its own. You know, the wind increases. It creates its own climate. It seems when when a fire is blowing through there. So it seems like all bets are off. What what the scary part is how people weren't alerted. How we rely on our officials in those times and you hope that there's somebody looking out for you when we covered the malibu fire the woolsey fire from 2018 in my film people felt really let down you know there were firefighters that were told you couldn't fight a fire on this street you had to go here you had to go there there were firemen that were there from different neighborhoods that didn't know the area i mean there were there there's always something you can look back on and go why did they do this that way but it really shows the frustration when there's a disaster once your destiny is out of your own control. They have an evacuation or some sort of disaster plan, emergency plan there. Yes, they did. And people, I don't know that they can make you leave, but they sure tell you to leave. We have that here in Florida when it's called a mandatory evacuation. And that's when they're telling you you need to leave, but they can't physically make you leave. And that's where a lot of people end up losing their life. You know, here it's from storm surge. Usually if you're right by the water and, you know, they ask you to write your social security number on your arm so they can identify you because they can't come rescue you under that scenario. So with fire in a firestorm, they can't come get you at that point. They needed to tell you before the fire got there. Yeah. And then that's uh, I will I will say this. I'm 100 percent sure that we had no evacuation plan, not especially nothing current after. The, and then I don't think that that any of that should have happened. I don't think the the police department, especially the police department, was equipped with managing that type of thing. I think people would have done much better on their own. And I don't I'm not the kind of guy to sit there and point fingers, but I do think it was a bad, bad choice for Herman Undia to not fire off that alarm. And they could have customized it because if you remember right, when we had the we had to customize several times when we had the bomb threat here, they were specific in the cell phone transmission of what was happening. I mean, I forget exactly what it says, but Bomb threat, eminent, not a drill. Is that, and so you saw what it was. And they could have customized their texts for, for the text as well as that. And people said from, from early in the morning, there was no self-service. So that wouldn't have done any good. But it was a bad, he knows it's a bad call. I don't know, he doesn't want to admit it, but that was a bad call on his part. They should have sounded the alarm. But uh, to think that somehow or another that there was, a, that the police department here I mean, they are, they're law enforcement officers and there's nothing in their job description whatsoever that um, has them planned for a disaster like this. So, well, there's, but I believe that in every community, the officials that, that work for that municipality or whatever, 
I think that's their job to have those plans. But what it shows us as citizens, no matter where we live, we should want to know that plan. You know, there was Paradise, California. They found out in their fire in 2018, there was there's really no way out. There was like one way out to get out of there. Um, here during the, the hurricane last year, Hurricane Ian on Captiva Island, there's one way out. So if people need to get out and they wait till the last minute, they can't even safely evacuate. So what I think the lesson here is, and, and it's there's nothing that that overcomes the tragedy of what happened and the, the damage and everything, is that people need to be their own best advocate and have a plan and, and know what they would do. And after the fact, we saw great examples of that. I mean, they didn't really have a plan, but you know what? It took a long time for FEMA, Red Cross, and so the organizations, per se, to get themselves together. But you know what? The residents, the people that live here, even the people that were burnt out and didn't have a place to go, everybody rallied together to try to make everybody safe and, and fed and taken care of and, and comforted and in a time that there was no help. It was just us helping us. That was it. And I think that that has... <laughs> As a matter of fact, it speaks to the human character, too, because when they did show up, they kind of it's almost like everybody just kind of let FEMA and Red Cross sort of take over until they realized they they weren't doing the best job. They weren't doing as good a job as they were doing. And they took back over the hubs themselves again. But I, I, was, I really am proud of my brothers and sisters here in Maui. They pulled together and we we took care of each other. Yeah, there aren't many times in life that you you get tested where you know your humanity is tested. You know, we've all, I talk about this a lot on the podcast. You know, there's a lot of people where I live that choose not to have a generator. They there's people in the Midwest that choose uh, the middle of the country not to have a tornado shelter. So the question is, after the disaster that everybody was aware could happen, what is your obligation to protect your family versus opening your door and, and helping everybody? It's kind of different with what happened there since it was such a widespread disaster and it seemed like it affected most of the people in that community. At the place I live, it's an apartment right across the street from the ocean. And they had a volunteer. Everybody walked around and started cutting the taller grass and getting rid, rid of everything around the area that would be burning. Um, and the, the other thing that they've done is like every month they have the siren that goes off for tsunami warning, but this time it was on text. So, you know, warning that this is just, you know, a test. So if they had done that with the fire, which I think they're going to do from now on, if something like that happens again, you're going to get a text on your phone. You're talking about the October 4th test. Yes. Yeah. Usually it's on the 1st, but they didn't go on the 4th. That was nationwide. Oh, it was? Yeah. Oh. Well, then it's only, a you know, it also depends on how many people take it seriously. When you guys have a tsunami warning over there, do people take it seriously? Because I used to live in San Francisco. And when I lived in L.A., when there was a tsunami warning, the news station would send a crew down to the beach to to get video. It's like nobody took it seriously. How It's a lot more serious over where you are when that goes, siren goes off. Depends on how you look at it. Do people take, think it's really going to happen? They they don't really think it's going to happen, but they don't. They go out and buy flashlights anyway. Yeah, you get it. So no, they don't really think it's going to happen. I don't think. It's I think that they look. Uh, they go to the TV and find out how big it is, and when it's you know, we usually have a four or five hour warning, so we're pretty sure as to whether it's going to happen or not. If you're watching a TV or radio. Now, when the disaster was occurring, you guys were the front page. 
you were the top story. It was wall-to-wall coverage of this tragic uh, event happening in Lahaina. Now that's passed, and now you're dealing with the hell of it, the people there, do you feel the media has just gone on to the next tragedy? Well, it's, yes, I do, but it, it isn't entirely their fault. And I'm saying that because there's still a media blackout. The emergency proclamation, uh, Section 173-A, allows them for a media to, to stop media transmissions, electronic me- media transmissions, suspension of the First Amendment. So there still is no media in and out of there. So you can't you can't get a story unless you're you're kind of sneaking in and out of there, and guys have done that, but they're really cracking down on it. Like like Howard said, there's National Guard out there, there's the police department, and there's some other security forces that I have never seen before in uniforms I've never seen before. Somebody said that they're UN, but don't quote me on that. I don't know. So what are they doing here surrounding our town? Yeah, so where did all the people? Where do all the people go? There's a lot of people that are displaced. That's a good question. Uh, a lot of people have, have left the island that could, that had the means and well, especially if they had family members on other islands. And the ones that were wealthy enough to go to Oahu have already done so. But there's still a lot of people here. They're being shuffled around different hotels and different vacancies. And that causes a problem, too, because they've now opened up to tourism. So they've, the people that were in hotels are being asked to move to other places and we don't know what's happening with them yet uh i think some of them have gotten extended but the hotels i mean you see it's a catch-22 we need the tourism here for the money we need the um support but at the same time people need a place to go so there are still some people that are displaced yeah camping in their cars camping in their cars or the the beach there's not as many as i thought but there's still a huge a huge amount of people that just don't have a place to go. And part of the reason is because when FEMA looks at a, at a household, they see one household. But in Hawaii, and I'm not sure you know this, you look at one household, especially if there's if it's been there a couple of generations, there's probably going to be a few families living in the same house. And they don't, they don't, they're not covering a few families. They're only covering like one family. And I'm not, there might be four families in that same house. They're all related or might not be related. So they're not really getting the coverage that they need and the help that they need in that sense. And I don't, there seems to be a lot of money that has come in here, but of course, as soon as it comes in, it immediately has to go back out to buy more supplies and things like that for the people that don't. Now, you you know, the kind of stuff, the stories we hear about here are just, you know, like how did Oprah's house avoid burning down? How did some of the, the the uber wealthy people was it just not in that same area because i don't know the geography of that area so well that's a different area although the, the you could one could argue that kula could have possibly Kula's up up mountain up up, up country up the mountains where the first fires were, or some of the first fires i think a lot of one thing that i know most people don't think about you think even if you have sprinklers or you have a, a hose when there's a fire, first of all, if they cut the water off, you have no shot. But when everybody's using their water at the same time, the water pressure goes down to almost nothing anyway. It was cut off. I, I there was a there's a story about it. The guy that was in charge of it, and believe me, he's one of the ones that's catching heat, not as much as Herman and Daya, the emergency management guy, but he's catching a lot of heat for it too. 
because it would have been very easy for him to divert more water to the area, which is normal in an emergency. It's quite normal, as a matter of fact, for them to divert waters where it's needed most. And he didn't do it. And the song and dance story that he gave, and I wish I had that clip right here, but it, I didn't keep it. And I would share that with you, but it's just really the, the most pathetic story I've ever heard. I've and seen I that like clip. That is not going to age well. There was there when you look at that and you hear the story, it's like you, you there's no excuse. Like that's bad. That's that's not going to yeah, like you said, that's not going to look well looking backwards. I feel well, in, in a way I don't know. I don't even understand why Herman and I really wanted to stick to his guns on that either, man. Because I that would have been the first thing. Oh God, I do regret it. I would have said that. I didn't send it off because I was. I thought everybody would be as stupid as me looking back. Maybe maybe I should have sent it off. That might have been uh, maybe liability. It's probably an insurance reason reason or something that covering his own ass on something like that. So if you had to look back now and you got are going to have a lot of time to do it. Um, what would you what would you think would be done differently? For sure, a text on the phone to let the people know immediately there's a fire. Well, I think like you said, just to have a full blown evacuation or some sort of emergency plan somewhere that somehow or another the people know exactly what to do to get out of that one lane to get off that one road, you know, somehow or another get the hell out of there. Yeah, like we that. didn't know what the plan is. Like a tsunami, there there's areas that say Come to this area. So now this is tsunami proof. And you go up the mountain, of course, and they're marked and you can see them. But not so when a fire comes, you know, it's like, what do you do? And everybody panics and tries. There's only one way, two ways in and out of Lahaina. One's through a tunnel and the other one's just a really old windy road. That's Some people are scared to even drive that road because it's up against the cliffs. And so Lahaina is also the west side of the island. So it's like a desert as far as, you know, the rainfall. You know, it's, it's all brown right now. You know, the rich people live out in Hana, Oprah Winfrey. That's all green jungle, the way you think of Maui in your mind. But this side of the island is more like a desert. Until November, December, January, the rains come and then it turns all green over here. So after disasters on the mainland, we always second guess. And so if it, you live in an area that gets wiped out by a flood or a hurricane, you go, all right, is it worth rebuilding there? If we do, do we do it differently? So what's the assessment for a community like Lahaina? Obviously, it wasn't built to survive the tragedy that that hit it. So how do you rebuild? Well, there's been talk of, they said, even before the fires are turning it into what do you call it. They, uh, well, the rumor is that they were, they, the rumors have always been that it was supposed to be a smart city satellite or smart satellite city. Uh, they wanted to try to do that. They have this group called Build Beyond Barriers that have been managing that. Lahaina was never part of the conversation, at least not openly, because Lahaina was already built. You know, it's a historic town and they have regulations about not being able to build there unless there's a natural disaster. How convenient. Uh, so for them to build back, I personally believe that said that people that own homes right there should be, have the choice of how they want to build back. That's their own personal property. That that's not a decision. I think that should belong to the state, but, uh, the stuff that, that, um, belongs to the state, obviously, I think everybody's going to build back smarter. I hope that they build back with some of the stuff that's over the water, but rumor is that they're not going to do that. They're going to have setbacks and such. 
and that coast is going to be pristine without any buildings over it. But I don't know about you, but I like to have an oceanfront dining at Kimo's, you know, <laughs> sitting out there over the ocean. And Lahaina, experience. Lahaina kind of reminds me of Carmel, you know, the front street there and the shops, that real feeling that you get right on the ocean. Um, and it's cool. I mean, I've lived here many, many years. There's a banyan tree there that's over 100 years old. And that caught fire. That's right on the ocean. It's probably one of the biggest banyan trees in the world. But they say it's starting to come back. There's a little oh, green leaf. It's too fast to kill it. Yeah. Fire is too fast to kill it. Some of if, you had to take a, if you had to take a guess when you'll see Lahaina coming back, what would you guys think? Four, okay. Four, at least four years. Yeah, they're talking four and a half, five, maybe as much as six years. Now you can see the land bake thing I was talking about. How are homeowners going to be able to, or property owners, period, going to be able to last four and five years? You know, and the people that, that worked there, the infrastructure of the community, the the waiters, the waitresses, the the laborers, all the people that relied on those businesses that were there to make a living. What do they do? What do they do? And probably the answer is fold and go someplace else for those people now. Here's what the local people are saying. Now, the majority of the people that lived in the, the area of Lahaina that got burnt, they're either in law enforcement, fire department, and so many fire people lost. I think there's 19 firemen that lost their home. Was it 19? 19. Six, 64 boats. Or 64 boats. But but um, the rest of those people over there were construction people, and they all believed that they could have things up and running and it's at as little as 18 months to two years. So there's a difference of opinion about how fast it takes to rebuild something like that. And so that's why people think it's a land bank. There's no rebuilding going on at all right now until that land gets detoxified. And they'll never be detoxified because they'll have to scoop it up and take it away. If there's a, even if there's that level of toxicity to begin with, I don't even know. Like I said, there has been no independence. That is, it's all been FEMA. But but uh, they just sprayed this stuff called soil tech on it, and it's a type of vinyl. And I guess it's pretty dormant as long as there's no fire. But as soon as that catches fire, that becomes super, super toxic. <laughs> and it's not like, you know, they just, they're spraying that. The governor just gave the okay to put that on there. And, it's, and there's other alternatives, enzyme-based soil um, adhesives, you know what I mean, that they could have been using. But they chose to use this and... I don't know why it bothers me so much that it's a British-based com company, but and it's, it's totally not relevant. But I don't think that spraying vinyl on the no. ground in Lahaina is an ecologically sound decision. No, that you, you would love to have been at the meeting where that was deemed a good idea. Um, and, and that's the same with a lot of things. You know, after a disaster like this, there's so much second guessing that that everybody can do. And I think people don't really calculate that cost in the, when they understand where they live. It's okay, my insurance may pay for my house, but there's a, so many other things beyond your control. What they found out in Malibu, people couldn't rebuild the way they wanted to because of permit regulations. And you had to, you could only rebuild your house in the exact same footprint that was there. You had to apply for a whole new building permit. I mean, it's not easy to rebuild. No, and I was more curious about... Uh, Paradise, the Paradise fires. I, I heard so much about the Paradise fires that they weren't allowed to put fires out because now the new law is that you got to let it burn naturally, right? 
but there are certain areas that once they cross that they've designated as that as that natural wild area wild forest or wildlife area and then once you get beyond that then you can start putting it out but by then it's out of control so i think a lot of these fires not the ones here in maui that was different but the fires that are happening around the globe they're under the same principle uh they should if they had earlier action they probably none of these especially paradise probably wouldn't have been as big and as intense as it was if that's the true policy there well what's always interesting to look at is the areas that we choose to live as people the how we want to live there is counterintuitive to how you should probably safely live there so if we live in the woods and you live in a cabin a wood cabin in the woods with trees all around your house if you were to talk to a fire expert that's the exact opposite of what you should do if you live by the beach on a slab on grade house near the water you're just begging to have a storm surge wash you out. I mean, I don't think we make good decisions. In this case, I'm not second guessing what anybody did, but it makes you just wonder on a rebuild what you should think about in how you should do things differently. I I agree. And I think there's it comes down to the materials. And if, it, if the lines had anything to do with it, that's an easy fix. But I got to tell you something concerning those lines. Those lines were not dug in there very very well. There wasn't that long ago I was driving down the street that was on the other side of Lahaina uh, uh, and it was up a hill, was like a service road in Kanapali. And I lost control of this truck. It was a big truck, a big Dodge um, diesel. And I hit a light pole uh, or telephone line or whatever. And it, it came up rooted. But you know, it was only it was only in the ground about that deep. It really came up super easy. The damage on the truck was significant, but you know, there was no, you know, uh, I was in no danger, but I was surprised how easily that pole came uprooted. So they, right after that, they came and fixed every one of those poles and put them in there deeper. That was there right after I hit that. So why they didn't continue that process, or that practice, and maybe build a better infrastructure while they had the chance. Maybe now that they'll have to do it. I mean, heck, they've been given $95 million dollars to rebuild at least the electrical infrastructure there. So there's no excuses at this point. I will give a shout out to uh, FEMA and World Central Kitchen. Uh, they had, we had lots of water, we had lots of food available, plenty. Um, and the World Central Kitchen, the guy that owns that, he's friends with the late, great Anthony Bodane, you know, the uh, mm -hmm. chef. And so they were good friends. And so the food was really surprisingly good. And then they had concerts at the beach park across from my house. And everybody, they had free massages and they had the medical. I mean, it was amazing how everybody came together. And lots of hugs in the park and people were crying. Is people, it still that way, though? It's, it's, it's slowing down now. There's less people. But there's still all the food and stuff is still there. Monday, Wednesday, Friday at one spot, Thursday, Friday at another. And so that regards it. And also they were running around with gas cans. People ran out of gas and they were people were lined up the street with no gas. And a gas truck came by and filled all their gas cans so they can get to the other side, get gas. So that part I thought was really good, how people stuck together and how they helped. So that part was really nice. Yeah, I mean, it's nice if you can pull something good out of something bad, but just, you know, when you get past the, it's hard to get past the loss of life and how many years it's going to take for people to get their lives back back together there. 
Ethan, Howie, thank you guys so much for for sharing your story of what's going on there. Ethan, I think you and I could probably sit and talk for hours just about conspiracies on things. Uh, oh yeah, don't get it started. I have I, I'm so deep in the rabbit hole, George. You wouldn't know. Well, you might maybe you wouldn't know. I we'll have just, suspicion. We'll start time, with maybe. COVID vaccines and we'll work our way down. <laughs> You're just speaking my language, George. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining me today. If you take anything from this episode, I hope you'll make sure you have a disaster plan in place for you and your family. If you have a story of disaster you've experienced or a homeowner experience that you've had, good or bad, there's a contact form in the show notes. Fill it out and you might be a guest on an upcoming episode. If you enjoyed what you were listening to today, please become a regular subscriber so you don't miss an episode. A new one comes out every Tuesday morning. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.